0: You'll please take your Bibles and turn to 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. We're continuing our study of how do we live life in the last days, and obviously we've been in the last days for a while, and so we're coming to a part of the passage that again, if, if I'm honest, it's a, it's a hard passage, not that there's um, anything significantly uh, overwhelming theologically, but it's just, it's a hard, hard passage to try to get and to apply and for us to understand, and, and I think that is because of who we are as people. Um, I was flipping through the channels the other day and came across a special on the survivors of the Holocaust, and uh, inevitably, if you watch those kind of programs, the questions that come is, where is God? Where was he? Now, the reality is, is that can be unpacked. Significantly different for each person, but the reality is, I went and looked uh, for the Jews for Jesus' response uh, to this. And again, I think this is a great way for them to, to look at this. And they said, "Such people find themselves, the people in the Holocaust, in a quandary, ever restless until they know in what or in whom they can place their faith." They said, "Evil people are the ones who acted out on their own hatred, not God, not Jesus." are to blame for the atrocities of the holocaust could it be that those who blame god or jesus or christianity simply can't bear the awful reality that since history began human beings from all walks of life have demonstrated the potential to commit any horror, horror imaginable could it be that each person is capable of hatred and that we don't want to face that truth about ourselves so that is the reality. And last week we saw how Hein was able to meet God in the midst of cleaning a latrine. See, God never leaves us or forsakes us. This is Psalm 139 that Mike read for us earlier. He never, ever gives us anything beyond what we can bear either. But God puts us in places where, again, we do experience in this life persecution and sufferings. How we respond tells a great thing about who we are. Either we're in us or we're in Christ. Listen to the passage. This is one um, verse in the Greek. So verses 5 through 10 this morning. And this is evidence of the righteous judgment of God. That you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering For when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed, this ends the reading of God's holy and inerrant word. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, this is a hard passage. So Lord, I pray that those who are in Christ are encouraged. Those who don't know you, would be warned once again. For we know that you give more warnings about hell and the recompense that you bring than you ever give in regards to the hopes and the presence of you in heaven. And so, Father, please give us ears to hear and hearts to understand. And then may we apply what we are learning today into our lives That we would be like the Thessalonians who grew in faith and knowledge of our wonderful Savior, but then also to love one another more deeply. This is how they'll know we are Christians, by our love. So Father, teach us as only you can by the power of the Holy Spirit. And it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. So if we are honest, one of the first questions we ask, is God just? Which means a lot of times we're asking very specifically, is God fair? Chuck Swindoll gave this statement. The problems of pain, suffering, death, and injustice in a world created by a good and all-powerful, all-knowing God are like deep potholes in the path of many people's walk with God. For when believers suffer affliction, they often doubt the Father's power or they they often doubt his love. They find themselves striving with God intellectually and emotionally, wondering if something about their theology is wrong. Is God really all-powerful? Is he really loving? Is he really just? See, that's our struggle. Is God fair? Because if we're honest, a lot of us believe that we are more compassionate than God Himself. Hmm. We ask questions like, why doesn't He just save everyone? He's able to, so why doesn't He? I remember a professor in college saying this to me when we were bringing up these kind of ideas and struggling it through, and he says, uh, Mr. Godwin, you have a pea brain. You have a pea brain and you cannot comprehend the all-powerful, all-knowing, all-creating, all-loving God. But we want to, don't we? We want to think that we can figure him out. Isaiah 55 tells us very clearly, The rock, his work is perfect, for all his ways are justice. A God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright as he. That comes from Deuteronomy. He's just. But how do we know that? Isaiah 55. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. See, we've got to get in the perspective that, again, we serve a God who is perfect. Listen, when God in creation, if you remember back, God spoke everything into existence except one thing. The one thing he did not speak into existence was man. God formed man and then God gave to man the breath from himself. God so loved us, God's perfection in creating man was so thorough that he again did not make us robots. He gave us free will, and in the most understanding of that free will, we chose to go our own way. See, we choose to sin, even though we're born into sin. Every one of us, if we were put in the position that Adam and Eve were in, we would have still done what they did. Why? Because we want to be like God. We want to be in control. And yet God in his perfection and as he made us, he made the reality for us to understand that he is perfect. He's perfectly just. He's perfectly righteous. He's perfectly loving. He's perfectly forgiven. But he's also perfect in sending people to hell. See, the reality is that if God was fair in regards to our understanding, all of us would go to hell. The mystery, the greatest mystery, is why did God save anyone? Why did he choose to give mercy and grace? See, it's part of his righteous judgment that we, as we live in persecution and trials and tribulations, it's part of him being righteous. He is the one who's going to punish those who need to be punished. Every culture, listen. Every culture in the world doesn't matter where you go. Every culture punishes criminals. Why? Because we understand right and wrong. And so, in the midst of that, God knows exactly that sin cannot triumph. Listen, cannot triumph in a moral universe. Psalm one, uh, Psalm ten. He says in his heart, God has forgotten. He has hidden his face. This is David. He will never see it. So arise, O Lord, O God. Lift up your hand. Forget not the afflicted. Why does the wicked renounce God and say in his heart, you will not call to account? And that's what people think, right? The bad people aren't ever going to pay. And the bad people think they'll never get caught. But, But you do see. For you note mischief And vexation that you may take it into your hands to you, the helpless commit themselves and you have been the helper of the fatherless. God does see and because he is perfect, he has a righteousness that he brings about as he judges each one of us because he either judges us or he judges Jesus, but he judges both fairly. And so as we have that, Paul says to the people, and again we go back to verse 4, he says, Therefore we ourselves boast about you and the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith. And in all your persecutions and all the afflictions, you're enduring. You're growing in faith. You're growing in love. And so you are the evidence, the evidence in the midst of present persecution and affliction, that God is the one who brings about the purpose of that suffering. And the purpose is that we all play a role in the regards to God's righteous judgment. So when you go through life in the midst of persecutions and afflictions, it's a part of God saying to you, you are now worthy to be a part of the kingdom. And we'll look into that in a little minute. In a little minute in a little bit so the second thing we need to do is we need to understand that there is final judgment for the wicked and again God talks in the scripture more about hell than he does about heaven and so the reality is, is he wants us to understand and to hear these words because there is only saved and unsaved there's no third or fourth columns you either are or you're not And so if you're not, then here is the warning that comes from God to the wicked. The first thing he does is he reminds us, though, not to be about vengeance. Now, here's why. Okay? Because vengeance is a desire to get even for us. Okay? So we have an HOA. Now, it's not a big deal because we have to have 80 people um, present and vote on something to change something in our neighborhood, which for 180 people, very rarely do you get 80 people decide on anything. So nothing ever changes for us, but we still have to come. We still have to have gripe sessions and all this kind of stuff. Well, in the midst of this gripe session, someone griped to complain about a house over there that has too many cars parked by the stop sign. Wait a minute. I have a house that's on the corner, that's by the stop sign, and we have lots of people that park there. Well, we knew the person who was complaining, and they had called code enforcement already. And we need to figure out, and so angry and irate, well, when I knew who it was, I started to get a little angry. Why didn't they just come and talk to us? We know this person. All they have to do is come and talk to us. And we would have gladly moved the vehicles. Or I become more spiteful. See, maybe now I'm parking on purpose. Closer to the stop sign. I'm supposed to be 30 feet away, but I'm only going to park 28 feet away. I got to the point where I said, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to go park my car in front of their house. And walk home. See, I wanted to get even. Now listen, even in the midst of that story, I'm in the wrong. Now here's why God tells us not to have vengeance. Because even on our good day, there's always sin mingled in with what we do. So we want to get even. Or we even want to, if we're honest, hurt the other person. See, God has a completely different perspective because God's perfect. God's motives are always pure. They're always right. They're always perfect. And so God is someone who can judge perfectly, not you. So Matthew 5, and you don't, I don't have it up there, so just write it down. Matthew 5, verse 38. So you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. For you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than the others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Different standard. <laughs> Hard standard. Hard standard. And so God's coming. He says, you know what? I'm the one who's going to bring vengeance. And I'm going to bring it in my timing. Whether it happens in this world or in the next. And that's what he's reminding the Thessalonians here. He's saying, everyone's going to be judged. Everyone at the return of Jesus Christ. Now he goes by saying, this is how it becomes. The first thing that happens is that Jesus becomes unveiled. Now what does that mean? Well... Again, Jesus was veiled in human flesh. He's veiled up in heaven. But at the second coming, remember, the second coming's going to be so overwhelming that everyone's going to know. And what that means is that everyone's eyes will be open to the truth. And when it says in the scripture that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess, it doesn't matter whether you do it as he's your Lord or he's your enemy, but everyone's going to know. Everyone. And so it will be unveiled to everyone and the Shekinah glory of God will be so overwhelming. And so it allows him to be the one to bring about justice. And how he does it is he says he will come back from heaven. Just as he was ascended, he says he's going to come back. But this time he's not going back um, as the merciful giving God. He's coming back prepared for war. And as he comes back prepared for war, he brings with him the mighty angels. And so these mighty angels will come to bring divine justice that's going to be served upon all people. And again, don't think of them as these sweet little babies uh, with their little harps and stuff. Every time again, most times, not every time, but most times in scriptures, the angels had to say, don't be afraid. I'm not here to kill you yet. But make no mistake, when Jesus comes back, he brings an army with him. And when he does that, it says that there's going to be a flaming fire that comes with him. Now, there's two things that that fire does it can completely destroy or it can purify. For one, it's complete destruction. For the saints it's purification and they would have understood this this comes from isaiah 66 verse 15 but listen to what polycarp polycarp was a disciple of the apostle john and so he's the the first generation uh, that comes where none of the apostles all the apostles have died off jesus is gone so polycarp is a disciple and so there is history about those people who lived and so Polycarp, again, a disciple of John, and he's now up in his 80s. And the, the people, he's, the, he's in Smyrna. And so they get to the place where they're trying to kill the Christians. And so they send, um, according to the history, they send this group of people ready for, in, uh, in essence, war. And they come to find this old man in a house who invites them in and feeds them. And he says, this one favor I ask that I get to pray for an hour. He ends up praying for two hours, but in the course of that, the people that are there to arrest him start feeling bad. Why are we here and what are we doing? but well, they take Polycarp and they take him before the proconsul and Polycarp is a very witty individual and he starts to have bantering back with the proconsul because the proconsul wants him to um for the proconsul if you don't worship um Caesar then you are an atheist and so he says I want you to denounce the atheist and so Polycarp looks up at the crowd and he says I denounce the atheist which ticked off the proconsul He's like, don't you understand that I have the ability to kill you? I can throw you to the wild beast or I can burn you. And he said, get on with it then. And so this is what Polycarp responds. As he says, my burning will last but a moment. But for those who do not repent, your burning will last for an eternity. Repent and turn to the Lord Jesus Christ. At which point they take him, they tie him to the post. And they, they Typically they would nail the person's hands to the post so they wouldn't try to get away. Polycarp says, I'm not leaving. I'm staying. Now I don't know if this prayer of Polycarp is true or not. I didn't find it in every background, but it's a great prayer. This is what they say he said. Before he was burned. O Lord God Almighty, the Father of your beloved and blessed Son Jesus Christ, by whom we receive the knowledge of you, the God of angels, powers and every creature and all the righteous who live before you, for I give you thanks that you count me worthy to be numbered among your martyrs, sharing the cup of Christ and the resurrection to eternal life, both of soul and body, through the immortality of the Holy Spirit. May I be received this day as an acceptable sacrifice, as you, the true God, have predestined, revealed to me, and now fulfilled. For I praise you for all these things. I bless you and glorify you, along with the everlasting Jesus Christ, your beloved Son. To you, with him, through the Holy Ghost, be glory, both now and forever. Amen. So Polycarp goes because he understands that for the non-Christian... It's over. So even in his last prayers, he wants them to understand that there is a final judgment that is to come. And those that have afflicted the people of God will be afflicted by God himself. And judgment will come. Judgment will come. And again, just because you hear the gospel message doesn't mean that you hear the gospel message. Because those are the things that That um, Paul talks to the Thessalonians. Why are they going to eternal judgment? Because they don't know God. They can know about Him. And you could be sitting here for years and you can know about Jesus and never, ever know who He is. And secondly, He says, those who have not obeyed the gospel. See, the reality in God's perfection, he knew the substitute that had to be paid. And that substitute is not cheap. It cost him his son. And so make no mistake, there will be vengeance upon the wicked in the day of the Lord. But to those who have Christ, to those who have Christ, It is a vindication. A vindication. And it's a vindication because of his righteousness. See, he counts us as worthy of the kingdom. See, God is always conforming us into the likeness of Jesus. He's always changing us. Why? Because he's our brother. We're a part of his family. And I want you to think of this. um, I had a great family growing up. And uh, the the Capones and... uh, Loved Gino, went over to his house a lot, and, and I was a better driver. So they actually um, put me on their list so I could drive more cars than Eugene could. He could only drive the little Fiat. Okay, they gave me money, they helped take care of me. Um, they, were, they were my extended family. But how do I know that I wasn't a member of their family? Huh. It's when it came down to discipline. See, any time that Gene and I did something wrong, which was more often than not, Mr. Capone will take and discipline his son, Gene, I would get sent home. See, there's a thing that God calls us his family. We are his sons and daughters. And so the reality of being counted worthy of the kingdom means that sometimes we're persecuted and afflicted because we are a part of the family. It is a part of the evidence. So there's a, a weird way that you have to think about it as because I'm persecuted and afflicted, that means that I'm a part of the family of God? Yes. If your sin is never dealt with, if, if, if someone doesn't confront you in sin and your mind doesn't confront you about your sin, then I would be scared But for God, he comes and he tells us there's always going to be a cross before the crown. There's always going to be suffering. And we need to understand that. Let's look to the scripture, Acts 5, verse 40 and 41. And when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Then they left the presence of the council, Listen, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. First Peter four thirteen, but rejoice in so far as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. See, see, there is a reality that we have suffering in this world, but it's never ever to be paired to the to the greatness that we're going to receive in the next. Is there going to be suffering? Yes. Will you be persecuted? Yes. Will you have afflictions in this world? Yes. Do I know what extent that is? No. Right now, we're not in a place where you're being martyred for your faith. We might not be far from it. I wouldn't think we were going to be here 50 years ago. So we're in a world where, again, people are going to be hating us for the truths of the gospel. And God comes in and he says, you're going to suffer and have these afflictions, but pay no never mind to it. Because the end is far greater. So keep in faith, keep in love. And then it says that he will be glorified in his saints. Which means that, again, as Christ is persecuted, we're persecuted a lot of times. Remember what it says in regards to Saul? Saul? When he has the conversion, what does Jesus say to Saul? Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? See, we as God's people, when we're being persecuted, it's a persecuted upon Christ, and God takes notice. And so as he takes notice, he also wants us to understand that he brings comfort to us. Romans 8 and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we also might be glorified with him. For I consider that the sufferings, listen, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. It's nothing. Remember, this, and I want to, and I repeat myself, oh, you saying the same thing all the time. Yes, because we got to get this. This is as much hell as you'll ever experience as a Christian. It's much hell. Because Christ endured what you will never experience. But if you're not a Christian, you will experience hell in a very real way. And so we have to be reminded that again, even in the midst of our, our trials and tribulations and persecutions, it's nothing compared. And we can be comforted, which means we grow in our faith. As we grow in our faith, then we should also grow in our love for the Lord Jesus Christ. And what that means is we 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 listen, he didn't come to save the angels. In the midst of all this, remember the angels are with him, the angels are gonna do his bidding, but they're not gonna be saved. God says, I'm going to be glorified in my saints. Which means that when he comes back and Jesus comes, the glory that we're going to see, the admiration we're going to have, the worship that we're going to give is going to be overwhelming. And as Presbyterians, you're going to finally dance. And some of you will actually have rhythm that you've never had in life. And you should be, over, you should be as excited as you can be right now. That you will be in the presence with the Lord Jesus Christ when he comes back in the victory that he brings. And the reality is, is he should be everything to us. One quote I saw in regards to this says, there's no such thing as a closed country for those that love the Lord. Cause it doesn't matter what man can do. Our love for God will take us to the ends of the earth. He'll put us in places where we're uncomfortable, and that's okay because we love Him more than anything else in the world. Think about that. You do that with your kids. You do that for your grandchildren. How much more for the Savior? What does He tell us the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God? With how? With all your heart, with all your mind with all your soul and with all your strength. That encompasses everything. And then he continues to say, and love your neighbor as yourself. See, if we get this right, then you begin to love other people the way we're supposed to. Again, this place should be a place of forgiveness and mercy and grace all the time. There's no sin. Listen, no sin that cannot be forgiven. There's no way anybody in this room cannot be reconciled to another person in this room. No way. Because Christ has provided. And he says, as you grow in your faith and as you grow in your love for one another, you become the evidence for his righteous judgment. Let me finish with this from C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis has famously stated, there are only two kinds of people in the inn, those who say to God, thy will be done. And to those whom God says in the end, your will be done. All that are in hell, choose it. Without that self-choice, there could be no hell. For no soul that seriously and constantly desires joy will ever miss it. And those who seek, find. Those who knock, it is opened. I want to live you with this. It is God. God, not wicked people, who gets the last word. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, no one wants to be sent to prison. Nobody wants to be martyred. Nobody wants to be made fun of, joked about, Nobody wants to lose a job or a home because we're Christians. But yet, Father, may you so grow in us because of the testimony of your son, Jesus Christ, because you gave your son to die a death he didn't deserve, to give us a righteousness we could never earn, so that we might be called your sons and daughters. And so, with Father, with that understanding, may our love for you continue to ever grow. May our faith and trust in who you are and in your promises and in your word ever grow. So that heaven forbid, but Lord, if we find ourselves in the midst of dying for our faith in Jesus Christ, that we would not shudder we would not shrink but we would boast in the gospel of Jesus Christ for he is our savior and our Lord and our love may we be true to the calling that you've given to us and be faithful to the king of kings and lord of lords for it's by the power of the Holy Spirit that enables us But it's in the name of your son, Jesus Christ, that we come and we know you hear and we know you answer. For we pray all of this in the powerful name of our Savior, Jesus Christ, and all God's people said, Amen. Amen.